Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. No single instance will transform your beliefs, but as the votes build up, so does the evidence of your new identity. James Clear, Atomic Habits. Hey, friends and family, I am Cal Walters, and welcome to another episode of Intentional Living and Leadership. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with me, with this community. Today, here I am recording in a shed. My wife calls it our she shed. We recently moved to North Carolina, and we renovated a garage. Thanks, Clayton and Megan, for all your help on that. And now it is, my wife calls it a she shed. I tried to fight that battle, but I definitely lost. And so here I am in this new space recording. She let me borrow it for a little while. It's a little bit better than my car, although I still do record in my car when I need to. But I hope that you're doing well. And I hope that this podcast today can inspire you on your journey to live a more intentional life and be a more effective leader. If you subscribe to this podcast, you'll get a new episode every other Tuesday. And thank you to everyone that continues to share this podcast on social media. And thank you to everyone that has gone to Apple Podcast and left us a rating review. If you haven't done that, I would sincerely appreciate it. What that does is it allows us to get more exposure and allows us to impact more people. So I appreciate all of you that have supported this podcast and continue to support it. I hope that it continues to serve you well. Today, I'm very excited to share with you my interview with Justin Whitmill Early. He is the author of the hit book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Doesn't that sound good right now with all the distractions we have Today, we're going to talk about habits of purpose. This book was a winner of a Christianity Today 2020 book award, and it is a personal and transferable book on Justin's own journey with habit formation. Justin is a father of four boys. He's a husband and a business lawyer based out of Richmond, Virginia. Justin did his undergraduate work at the University of Virginia and became a missionary in China and then he attended law school at Georgetown University where he graduated at the top of his class. On this episode, we discuss Justin's personal journey with his faith. We also talk about uh, his story of panic attacks and anxiety and how that ultimately led him to focus on habits. We discuss the contents of this book, The Common Rule, how he lives now according to these daily and weekly habits that he established years ago after these panic attacks. And we cover a lot of very practical takeaways for everyone on how you can align your beliefs and your actions by focusing on habits and creating effective systems. A couple books I want to recommend. First, I do recommend Justin's book, The Common Rule. I think it's a great book. In fact, he summarizes a couple of these other books that I recommend. One is Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. That is a great book to give you an introduction to habits, the power of habits, uh, many great examples of how habits have transformed companies and individuals. And a second book I'd recommend is James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. It really takes the power of habit and builds on that. So any of these three books would be a great way, especially as we're kind of getting closer towards the end of 2020, to begin to think about goals and habits and how those two things work together. I'll try to do an episode where I talk about habits specifically and cover some of my favorite takeaways from those books. 
For show notes on this episode, just go to my website, calwalters.me. And without any further ado, please enjoy this interview with Justin Whitmel Early. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cal. So happy you asked. It is really neat to have you on. I really enjoyed your book, The Common Rule, The Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. And I would love to start. So in the book, you say that the common rule is a program of habits designed to form us in the love of God and neighbor. So you, you, you write this book from a Christian perspective, and I would love to hear about your faith journey, about how you became a Christian or how you came to establish that as your faith. Can you share, us, share with us just your story of coming to the faith? Sure. I grew up in what I now realize was a very functional and loving family. And so I'm really grateful for that, even though the longer I live, the more I realize that I'm somewhat unusual. Um, I have five brothers and sisters, so there's six of us kids. And my mom and dad uh, became strong Christians in college. And so we were all raised in a really just wonderful, present, loving community. And our faith was a part of that. So I, I grew up with a high regard for my parents' faith. But I will say it was my parents' faith until high school and college. And it was in high school that I started to intellectually move to do I understand this? Do I agree with this? Yeah. And I had some wonderful youth pastors that helped me work through some of the intellectual wrestlings. So by the time I got to college, I, I was intellectually on board, but um, I wasn't emotionally on board. And I really, it took my wanderings and rebellions. You know, you kind of want to test the limits, like a two-year-old testing the limits <laughs> of his parents' yes. um, orders. Um, I kind of wanted to test the limits and, and I did. Um, and I basically came to a point where I realized I, I think the happier and the better and the good life is the life following Jesus. Because hmm. I had tried the other version of life, and I found that myself to be um, kind of longing, lost, and unhappy. So it was a long process of making the faith my own, but I have my mom and dad a lot to thank for, for what they gave me as an inheritance. What time of your life did you really take ownership over it? There was a significant moment my first year of college, okay, which was at UVA, and I know that you're recording out of Charlottesville, so that's right, yeah, um, and and that we're recording during the COVID crisis, which means that UVA gets to be the reigning basketball champions for an extra year. That's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, in, undisputed, undisputed. Yeah, convenient for me. Um, <laughs> it was my first year at UVA. I think I remember specifically one spring morning that my mom surprised me with a visit to the dorm, which would have been great, except that it was 2 p.m. in the afternoon and I was still hungover and sleeping <laughs> in my bed. <laughs> and so when hey, she Mom. came, she did call first. She was like, hey, I'm sending oh, this nice. out. I woke up with a horrible hangover and found um, cigarette burns on my arm oh, because my friends and I had gotten so roaring drunk that we thought it'd be funny to put cigarettes out <laughs> on each other. And yeah. I remember, I remember just being embarrassed of a life that I had come to 
need to hide. My little brother was with her at the time mm. in the visit. And it wasn't like I was ashamed of my behavior yeah. in front of my mom. Like, oh no, I'm doing immoral things and she's going to find out. It was actually more that she brought along my little brother and I felt ashamed of kind of the example that I was becoming. Wow. And that was a big moment for me. Nobody got me in trouble. Nobody wagged their finger at me. It really just was one of those moments where I had to think about, wait, who am I becoming? Mm. Is that the person I, I want to become? And why am I ashamed of it? Um, and so I just had to wrestle with that idea of who do I want to be in the long run? And I, and I did. And I think this is an, maybe an important message to fathers. You know, my, my dad told me a lot of stuff growing up. But in the end, it was a low point in college where I started imagining who do I want to be like? Yeah. He kept coming to mind that wow. I wanted to be like him. Wow. And that was where I, I said, I think, I think maybe that's a better life. And I think that's an important move for anybody in any faith, not just to intellectually ascend to it, but to start to understand that their longing can only be answered within that paradigm. And that's what it was for me. That's powerful. And it just goes to show too the power of a long-term example like your father who you know perhaps there were moments where he was living his life he had no idea the impact that he was having on you but to have that example that you thought about uh, it just goes to show i think the the impact that we can have simply by the life we live the idea of you know more is caught than taught clearly that was uh, just a powerful example that you had in your life of a great father absolutely and i think that's part of why I've become so interested in the long run of ideas of formation and who are we becoming rather than just education and what do we say? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, so you've written this book and in the beginning of the book, you talk about another part of your journey. So you've become a Christian, you've gone to law school. Tell us about this process or this journey of, discovering and then eventually developing the common rule and the set of habits that has helped shape your life? After college and after really diving into my faith, I really became concerned, I think appropriately so, with what, the, what God wanted me to do with my life. And that actually led me for a couple of years to be a missionary in China. And it was that same question of what does God want me to do with my life that actually led me back to the States to go to law school. So I think the important thing um, to understand about where I was at that time is that I was really a vision-driven person. Um, I had come to law school because I thought that was re really, honestly, I'd say a calling from God, even though I know that's a little bit of a loaded statement. But for the sake of time, um, just suffice it to say, I really did feel that. Yeah. And what's fascinating is that what's but what I think happened is that though I was on this calling from God to go to law school, my life patterns completely assimilated to the typical, you know, top law school student and ambitious young lawyer. Yeah. So there were some things in my life that were going great at that time. I wanted to do this. I had a wife and already two kids. I spoke Mandarin Chinese after living in China and I graduated towards the top of my class. It just all went really well. But at the same time, I was becoming incredibly busy. I always was staying up later, waking up earlier to take something else on or to add something to my resume. And so I had this, you know, 
Christian content decorating the house of my life. But I came to realize the architecture was the exact same as everybody else's. The habits that I had were exactly what you would expect for someone in my position. And those were working well until they all collapsed. And unfortunately, they often do so spectacularly. And even less fortunately, it's not uncommon, especially in lawyering, to see what happened to me. The short version is I woke up one night with debilitating panic attacks. I didn't even know the word for a panic attack at the time. I was just in the middle of the night sweating and heart racing, so much so that after two nights of this, I ended up going to the hospital where a doctor told me in a very anticlimactic moment that I was just experiencing symptoms of clinical anxiety and that that was really normal, as if that's comforting at all. Yeah. And I got sent home with sleeping pills and my, my life just cratered, um, in part because I responded really poorly to sleeping pills, but also in part because the low-grade anxiety over time was, was building into sort of this, this earthquake in my heart. And um, I went from being that mission-driven father of two and good husband graduating towards the top of his class to being someone who couldn't go to sleep without taking pills or, or drinking alcohol. And that's when I realized that something really significant had happened. I, I had been converted from I, the missionary. I had been converted to the nervous medicating lawyer in really short order. And I had to figure out how did this happen? Mm. Yeah, that's powerful too, hearing you talk about your journey at UVA. And so now you are, you've adopted this faith as your own. You've even been a missionary in China. And here you are making this transition. You do really well at law school, at Georgetown Law, by the way, top law school. Mm-hmm. And yet here you are, as James Clear would say, falling to your systems in life, falling to your habits. And James Clear yes. talks a lot about how we, everyone has the same goals. Everyone wants to succeed. Everyone wants to be fit. But we don't necessarily rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems and our habits. And I also think it's important for those that are, that are Christians and those that are, uh, have adopted the faith as their own. It doesn't necessarily mean that just because you've committed your life to Christ, that your life is going to be easy or that you're not susceptible to falling into these negative patterns in life. That's right. And I think as a missionary, it's fascinating because I should have known better, um, at least in retrospect. You know, we thought a lot as missionaries as what does cultural assimilation look like? Mm. You know, what part of the culture do you want to emulate? And what part of the culture do you want to encourage? And what part do you want to really avoid? But it's funny, I think because I thought of America as neutral territory, I just didn't think that I needed to w- be worried about cultural assimilation because, you yeah. know, this is where I'm from. This is home. Yeah. And I realized that that's not true at all. I mean, mm. culturally speaking, all you need to do is leave America to realize, oh, we are a strange place, just like every <laughs> other strange country. Yes. And biblically speaking, you just need to read a little bit of the Old Testament to realize the whole theme of the whole book is that um, followers of Jesus live in exile. So mm. the world is not meant to be rejected, but it's definitely meant to be seen as suspect, as in there are forces and cultural patterns going on here that you don't necessarily want to assimilate to. And I would suggest, like, technology right now is a great example of this for everybody. I mean, when you open a device 
or open an app. If you're not aware that this screen or this app or this program is trying to get you to think in a certain kind of way or click a certain way or do a certain kind of thing, if you think that really it's just a neutral portal, portal and you're the decision maker, then you're sorely mistaken and you're just going to go with the flow into really strange habits. Yeah. And law school was kind of like that for me. I just didn't see it as a ground of um, a habit formation machine, but it was. And yeah. so I was a great example of like establishing really bad habits and then falling rather spectacularly to the low level of those habits, even though my vision of who I wanted to be was soaring. It was really high. But I really agree, agree with James Clear. You, you don't rise to the level of your aspirations. You fall to the level of your systems. And most of us assimilate to really bad systems unconsciously. Yeah, that's a really good point. It, it talks about, or it highlights the importance of our environment. And we are surrounded by things that we can fall into. And in your book, you talk about just because we don't choose our habits doesn't mean that we don't have them. Absolutely. We are, if we're not careful, if we're not intentional and deliberate about forming habits, we are forming habits. They just may not be good ones. That's Tell right. us, we've talked about it already, but how did habits become something that you focused on as you tried to move from where you were to where you are now? The most important thing about my life at that time um, was not actually that I was in a tailspin and, you know, sort of death spiral of habits, though I was, and I was getting really scared. I think the most important thing about my life at that time was that I, I was still um, surrounded by friends, uh, a wife who cared and some friends who cared. Yeah. So they walked closely with me for a year that was really dark. And it wasn't quick and it wasn't tidy, but towards the end of that year, there was a key moment that I'll never forget. And that was, I sat down with my two best friends named Matt and Steve. And, um, on the table at this restaurant we were sitting at was a program of habits, some daily and weekly habits that my wife and I had come up with almost as a last ditch effort to try to rein in my chaos because I had tried some medication. I had tried some counseling my beliefs about who I was and what I ought to do hadn't wavered. I just couldn't figure out why they didn't seem to be mattering in practice. And so, you know, we thought, why not try this one other little thing? I just didn't think any of the habits would matter because I had, I guess at that time, no idea how much the smallest and most ordinary patterns of our daily routines actually affect our emotional lives and I would say even our souls in the most extraordinary ways. After committing to that little program of habits, my life began to drastically change. Um, and in a series of months, I started to think something really significant is happening here. And as a naturally curious person and as a lawyer who, you know, is trained to research, I just started reading and researching a lot about habit formation, spiritual disciplines, the idea of formation and assimilation in general and how our identity is tied to these small patterns. And that it opened, it opened my eyes to, I would su suggest almost a new dimension of life where I realized how had I never really thought before about aligning belief and practice. Um, wow. Because I just realized I, the way that I would sum up what I learned is basically that um, when, when your head, your belief goes one way, but your habits or your, your, your um, sort of 
gut feelings go the other way, your mm-hmm. heart, that is your identity, who you are, almost always follows the habits. Yeah. And thus a lot of who we become and what we love and what we want as a result of habit formation. And I thought, oh, I need to really do this intentionally. I, yeah. I can't just assimilate anymore. I got to intentionally pick my habits. That's so powerful. And I think for those listening right now, just let that sink in for a minute. I think what I hear you describing is this, it's really a gap. It's a gap between our values, our desires in life and our actions. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, it seems to me that it really is the habits that create, that really can close that gap between our purpose. And you talk about this in the book and our daily life. It's, it's really what helps us close the gap, which I think is almost a gap of discontentment. The more in our life, the, the more distance there is between our desires in life and our reality and our actions, I think is what ultimately leads to that just deep sense of discontentment that I'm not living the life that I want to live. Uh, absolutely. And I would never suggest that the values and the beliefs don't have an incredibly important role. I actually just think we're better at seeing them. I mean, somebody who has the right values and beliefs, but without the habits, we know what that looks like. Um, we get disillusioned really quickly because life doesn't seem to meet the expectations we set. And, but somebody who has all the habits, but without the beliefs, yeah. um, they tend to be empty and nihilistic or, or very selfish. They're doing yeah. it all right, but it's for no good reason. Um, so what, you know, what I kind of, came to was just this wonderful, you know, uh, I think of a DNA spiral almost like when, when they align each other and there's just this upward spiral of belief and practice are working together to create what I think is a flourishing human life. And there's been a really different five years since that experience that I described. My life looks a lot different. Um, you know, I, I don't abuse alcohol. Um, I sleep well. I, I work really hard, but now within good limitations and maybe most importantly, I'm, you know, the father and friend and husband that I long to be while also doing the lawyering that I feel called to do. And I still live according to these little daily and weekly habits that were on the table that night. Um, wow. They've become very dear to me. And that's why I wrote a book about them. Was there one, you talk in your book about the keystone habit, which Charles Duhigg talks about. Can you explain to us what a keystone habit is? And then was there one first or keystone habit that really helped you get on a new system and really ultimately change your life? A keystone habit, I think of it as the first domino in a domino rally. They're the kinds of habits that where if you change that one, a lot of other ones will change. And so when I wrote The Common Rule, I tried to pick habits that all sort of tended to be the kind of habits that are keystone habits, but inevitably some of them have been a lot more significant for me and others have told me that some are more significant than other, for others than them. Um, I think the, one of the key habits for me has been the habit of scripture before phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about this with lawyers too. So for anybody listening who's not necessarily a Bible reader or there yet, reading before you go to your phone, I think is a very similar mirror image habit. Here's, here's why. I very quickly in my first year of lawyering became somebody who checked their work email first thing every morning, in part because I was working with our London office at the time. So I woke up every day to you know, half a day's worth of email requests and I wanted to do well. 
So I began this unconscious at the time habit of first thing I do every morning is wake up, roll over, check my email. And it never seemed to me to be a problem until one day my third son or my, was it my second son? It's all, it all blurs now. <laughs> anyway, they were, they were really young at the time. He woke up crying and I got up to go help him. And five minutes later, I'm sitting on the edge of my bed halfway through a response to the London office when I realized my son is actually still crying. I never went in mm. and wow. I did go in. He was fine. Just wanted to pass the fire. <laughs> but that was a wake up moment for me, yeah. literally a wake up moment where I, I realized how did I become the kind of person who's more attentive to the cries of my office than the cries of my son, because no one sets out to be like that. That's actually no one's aspiration. But so many of us do become like that by habit. And what I realized as I began to practice these new patterns, one of which was I'm not going to look at my phone in the morning until after I've either just been silent, kind of meditated, maybe prayed, or read a passage of scripture. Sometimes it's poetry too. But what, what I realized is happening is that my head was asking my phone a really simple question every morning, which was just, what do I need to do today? But under the radar, my heart or my identity was asking my phone a much more complex question of, who do I need to be today in order to be worth my salt? And the phone is really happy to answer that question for you. You know, if you start your day in work emails, you will start with the, the kind of vague sense that the point of today is to get done whatever so-and-so wants done. Or, or if you start your day in the news, you will begin the day with the vague sense that the world is shaky and we're not really sure if things are going to be okay or not. Or if you begin your day in social media, you, you will start the day with a vague sense of maybe your life should look a little bit more like that person's life. Um, and regardless of what you believe, None of those are good philosophies to, to enter the world by. Um, you know, as a believer, as a Christian, it's, a, it's way more important for me to realize that I don't need to prove my worth today because God loves me for who I am. Um, or that I don't need to worry about what's going to happen in the world today. God is in control of it. I can, I can enter it in order to help and in order to love, but not in order to fear about what's going to happen. And scripture before phone um, has been an enormous shifting of my daily pattern, which is an enormous shifting of my soul rhythms and emotional rhythms, which really has allowed me to be the kind of productive and engaged and peaceful person that I want to be. But I still do do all these things. I obviously check my work email and I do read the news and I engage on social media to some extent. But the order of the morning has really, really been important as a habit for me. I love that idea of who do I want to be today as a question to start your day. I think we can all relate to this idea of, I certainly can, checking my phone as the first thing starting my day. And it's not something I chose to do necessarily. It's just something I did as you cite the Duke study that 40% of our daily actions are a product of habit. And it is something that I have just unconsciously allowed myself to do. I want to ask you, Justin, what that looks like. What, how do you accomplish that? Do you have, does your phone sit beside your bed? Do you use a, an alarm clock instead of a phone? How do you fight that urge to check your phone in the morning? And how do you 
instead of phone, jump into, as you said, scripture or poetry or something that fills your soul and sets the course of your day? One thing that was really important for me at first that I actually suggest everybody do is to get your do not disturb settings right on your phone so that your phone can be off in the evening and not wake up until late in the morning. And if then, you know, if your mom calls, maybe she's put through or if your spouse calls, maybe they're put through. But otherwise, when you wake up in the morning, even if you do use your phone as an alarm clock, you won't see any notifications. So that's what I do. Um, I actually still use my phone as an alarm because I like the sleep tracking and we're, you know, tethered devices. We've gone through periods where we use the old school device called alarm clock that, you know, is largely forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, the biggest change for me is one, not having any notifications on there when I turn off the alarm. And two, and this is equally as important, I just had to practice the habit of I leave it right there on the table across the room and I go downstairs without it. Hmm. And so just, you know, for example, in my best rhythms, you know, I'm probably waking up an hour before anybody else in the house and my phone's not there. And I'm just downstairs reading or making a coffee, being quiet. Um, in some, uh, some very normal patterns this morning, for example, um, I woke up and thought I was the first one up, but actually, apparently one of my sons had already gone downstairs. And, uh, but that was the same thing. So I just sat with him. And even though I didn't have that alone morning time that I do like to have normally, it happens super often for me in this age of young kids where I'm woken up by then. And I just sat on the couch with him, again, without a phone. And uh, we read a story together. Mm. And that was also a great way to start the morning. So really a lot is going on just in the not letting your phone dictate your rhythms of the morning, but rather picking healthy rhythms and letting those rhythms dictate the use of your phone. Yeah, I really like that. And I like the idea of leaving your phone. For me, that's really helpful just because having it, for some reason, just having it somewhere in close proximity where I can grab it, for some reason, is an impediment to me being present. Whereas if I just leave it, I'm so much more present wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing. So I really like that. I want to go back to what you said about do not disturb. How do you actually do that? So you, you put your do not disturb on a setting at night and I, forgive my ignorance to where it stays on do not disturb in the morning and you can only allow certain people to get through. Is that how that works? That's right. And I think it's interesting because I encounter a lot of people who actually are kind of, they use their phones so much, but they're a little bit novice at how it actually works. And I think, um, well, we live in an age where almost nobody can work on an engine anymore. And, you know, maybe that's okay, even though all our dads and grandfathers could. <laughs> we need to be, the, you know, mechanics when it comes to our phones. These devices are really important and everybody should know how to sort of open the hood and, and, yeah. and work with it. And one of the things that you can do on any operating system is set a do not disturb function to begin, for example, at 10 p.m. at night and then continue till, let's say, 8.30 in the morning. And one of the things that will happen is that it just will be quiet. It's just a clock or it's a phone. No notifications or calls will come through unless you set maybe your mom as your favorite. So I have certain friends who will, if they call me in the middle of the night, my phone will ring. Yeah. Um, my office won't, right? So um, it's, it's just a way to, you know, can, you know, get under the hood of your device 
and tell it what you want it to show you because every app and every program wants to get through those settings so they can get your attention and sell it to advertisers. And that's, that's one of our huge problems, right? These devices are carefully made to grab our attention and sell it to other people. And so just like we mentioned a minute ago, um, if we don't set our habits, the programmers of the technology that we use will be happy to set them for us. They want to. That's how they make money. And I don't want to suggest evil conspiracies, but I do want to suggest a sober reality. It's a war. You, you, you know, people are fighting for your attention and um, you should steal yourself for the fight and make sure your attention goes to where it ought to go. Well, that's really helpful. I didn't know that. I'll, I'll admit that I don't even know how to fix the engine of my phones. I've shared an episode about Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism, and the, mm. the behavioral addiction that we all suffer from or can suffer from, I think most of us, because of social media and technology, the solitude deprivation, which we've talked about before. So it's really nice, and I appreciate, Justin, you sharing some just practical ways that we can combat that and set habits that really serve us well. We build the habit, and then the habit builds us and builds the life that we ultimately want. Let me real quick go through the habits that you outlined in your book. And I'd like to get you to talk about one or two more of them if we have time. So the daily habits that you talk about in your book are four. There are four of these. One is kneeling prayer three times a day. One of them is one meal with others. The third one is one hour with your phone off every day. And then the fourth one, which we just talked about, is scripture before phone. And then you have four weekly habits. One hour of conversation with a friend each week. Curate media to four hours per week. Fast for something for 24 hours. And a Sabbath. We've already talked about at least one of the daily habits. Which of the weekly habits have you found resonates with the most people? I really like talking about the hour of vulnerable conversation with friends as a weekly rhythm. Um, and I think it, it's resonated with a lot of people because if you follow the survey of the habits that you just laid out, um, one can see that what, what I'm trying to do is create rhythms in the day and the rhythms in the week that naturally incline our life towards things like eating with people moments of silence or focused reading, moments of friendship or rest, the kinds of things that if those are the foundational patterns in our week, then all sorts of wonderful things grow out of those. You know, friendship, healthy rhythms, work, exercise, focus. A lot of productivity grows, but a lot of relationships also grow. And um, I love talking about the weekly habit of vulnerable conversation with a friend because I. I strongly believe that American culture sits on a tilt. And if you are to do nothing else, you will most likely become a person who is wealthier and busier, who used to have friends. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows that um, friendship is desirable. This is not a revolutionary idea. But what I'm trying to suggest is the common sense that we need other people actually needs to be put in the habit of common practice. Because again, we, if we do nothing else, Americans tend to grow isolated. And so the hour of weekly conversation with a friend 
it's trying to get people to think about their week to include, you know, we have all these rhythms in our week. You know, we, maybe we grocery shop on Saturdays. Maybe we're off work on Sundays. Maybe we exercise these days of the week. And I want to suggest that right in there with eating, sleeping, work, and rest is, is community. And, and where does it happen that you really sit down and just talk with somebody? Not necessarily just watch a movie together or go drive golf balls together. Um, maybe those are great and count too, but where we really open up to each other in conversation because I, I really believe that it's vulnerability, it's telling our secrets, it's telling the truth to each other that really allows friendship to grow in the long run. And so I think we need people who know what we're actually going through, people who we talk, you know, real talk to, and, but yeah, and yet they stick around and they like us anyway. That's sort of surprising. I know every, all your flaws, but I still like you, is what we find in the best relationships, the best spousal relationships, and the best friendships. And so habits that encourage us towards there, I think, are just absolutely essential in our, in our current cultural moment. I love the idea of vulnerable conversation. And I think a lot of us can relate to this idea of busyness. I, I know there was a season in my life where whenever someone would ask me, hey, Cal, how are you doing? My answer was busy, which is such a bad answer. What does it mean to be busy? Right. But busy ended up in a lot of ways, meaning I wasn't having conversations with friends. I wasn't even calling my mom or my family. I was just allowing really other people to fill my life with things that weren't filling me. How do you make that happen? Like what, what practically do you do to make sure you build in time to have a conversation with a friend once a week? Well, at first it looked like a, an actual kind of accountability pattern where I said to a friend, um, it was one of the friends who was at the table that night. I mentioned Steve where I said, you know, let's meet every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. for coffee. And we would just do that as a weekly rhythm. And we would talk about our kids and talk about career, but we would also share our secrets. Um, we sort of, there were things, you know, Steve knows everything about me. And that gives me a lot of strength and inner security because I get to be a person who doesn't have secrets, even though you don't know them all. And nobody, you know, <laughs> but someone does. Yeah. Um, and then what I think, and I think this is actually just really important to realize for all of the habits. The wisdom of habit is that what, what begins as a strange and stringent routine, okay, I've got to do this every morning. I'm setting reminders. I'm asking somebody to keep me accountable. Um, the same kind of thing, you know, when you're learning to play baseball, you have a coach watching you and did you swing right? What do you need to adjust? What is so beautiful about the psychology of habit is that once it drops from your top order thinking to your lower order thinking, it's just the knee jerk reaction that you do. You don't, you know, after about the four to six week mark, some habits longer, some habits are shorter, but at some point you stop thinking about, Oh, I need to call Steve and see if we're still having coffee in the morning at 7am. And you both just show up because it's what you do. And um, that's the place where one, you actually have room to add another one now because you're not using any mental energy. And so you get in this upward cycle of I can do one habit for a month and then suddenly it's just the norm and I can add another one, which is a lot different than trying to, you know, bench press 300 pounds all at one time. You just, you start, the, the weights start to become weightless over time because your mind's not thinking about them. Um, 
in in the same way, then you have flexibility too. For example, when a newborn comes along in Steve's family or in my family, and we get all thrown off our rhythm, that's okay. Nobody's beating themselves up over that. It's not a rule. It's a habit. And as soon as those crazy phases, either at work or family, die down, you kind of slip back into the routine because it's just the norm. And there are always exceptions to the norm, but they prove the norm. And so, yeah, for us, it's looked like in some periods, actually, you know, scheduling that 730 coffee. At some times, it's just looked like, oh, this is kind of what we do. Hey, it's been a week or two since I've seen you. Let's, you know, get on the phone tonight or talk. And um, both of those are really real routines, but both of them actually do create friendship over the long term. And that's what that habit is getting at. Yeah, a couple observations about what you just said. I, I love this idea of being vulnerable, open, honest, completely honest with a friend and still feeling love. And I think that's the beauty of those unconditional relationships. And that's really, to me, the beauty of the relationship with Jesus for me personally is that I know he knows everything about me and yet he still loves me. So I love that. And you have just helped me see something that I'd never, I've struggled with is this the concept of how do I add habits over time because my inclination is to take all eight of your habits here and add them all at once because I want to have this this life that is in line with my values but I love this concept of building habits over time you do one habit it gets to where it's not as taxing on you because because it has become a habit and unconscious and now you can then add another habit so thank you for sharing that that's really good I think my next question for you as we're wrapping up here is what advice would you give to someone to get started? So let's say someone is inspired by your book or inspired by our conversation today, wants to begin to cultivate healthy habits. What is like a good first step to begin that process? The most important thing anybody needs to consider in building meaningful new habits is community. So I find that some people need to start with just one habit and build slowly, like we just talked about. Some people like the Whole30 approach, where you just, for a month, you're doing them all, and you realize, oh, you know, this one works, this one doesn't. But regardless of whether you start with one or all of them, almost no meaningful life change happens alone. And the real kind of sticky habits, um, like addictions, let's say alcoholism, there's great AA research that shows one of the key ingredients of habit change is somebody else who walks with you through the process, believes that you can actually change and is there with you. And so for me, doing these communally, whether it's just with my spouse or whether it's with a friend, like I told you about, that's the most important thing. So I think anybody that really wants to dive into this should find somebody to dive into it with. That's really going to make a lot of difference. That's great advice. I love that. I wanted to ask you, so one of the things about writing a book is that it's cemented in time. And I know it's been a little while since you wrote this book. Is there anything that you would add to take away change in the book based on the many, I guess, months that have passed since you wrote this? Um, that's a really good question. Fortunately, there's nothing I would take away as in, I said this, I shouldn't have said that. I will say, um, Besides the communal pattern of eating and maybe the weekly pattern of resting, there's not enough 
for me now that gets really physical in the books. Uh, so one of the two of the key habits that have become really important to me in the latter two to three years of my life, um, which was after the, the book was already going to the press, presses, was uh, sleep and exercise. And they've just been a, a part for me that where I've realized, I'll just take the exercise one, where I realized my mind as a lawyer and a writer um, suffers if I treat my whole person as just a mind. One cannot concentrate meaningfully and produce great work for eight hours in a row, despite the fact that all, you know, um, you know, all lawyering jobs and similarly situated jobs are structured just to think for eight hours in a row. It really doesn't work very well. We, we waste tons of time and we put a lot of stress on our bodies through our minds by doing it. And one of the things that's become really important to me to being a productive worker is to break up the day with the exercise. Some people begin it or close it with exercise. I love doing it in the middle, like taking an exercise break at a lunch break time. And I've just found that that rhythm has been the classic keystone habit of I'm by taking an exercise break. Um, and I, and I do sort of weight training, cross training, um, by taking an exercise break in the middle of the day, I not only work better, then I start sleeping better. I'm playing with my kids better because I have more energy. I'm eating better. You know, my wife thinks I look better, though it doesn't matter nearly as much as I thought it would. <laughs> but um, it's just, it's that classic keystone habit of everything starts to change around it. And so I think if I could go back, I would think about how do you sort of work in a a habit of the body, because whether it's weight training or running or maybe just a sport, attention to the body is attention to the soul. Attention to the body is attention to the mind. And I think too many people um, who are, you know, mind workers don't pay attention to the fact that they are embodied workers and their body needs care to be happy, to be healthy, to be productive and to be whole. Yeah, I can absolutely relate to that. I think physical fitness is something when I neglect it, everything in my life starts to fall a little bit. And over time, yeah. it's, one of, it's one of those things, you know, going back to Stephen Covey, it's one of those that's, it's not urgent, but it's so important. And if you neglect it long that's enough, a great point. all of a sudden it becomes urgent because you don't like the way you look, you maybe have health issues, uh, and any number of things. And so I, I really... I think that's a great thing to highlight. As we're wrapping up here, Justin, I'd love for you to share what are two books that perhaps you've gifted the most or that you would recommend to our audience? One has to be a book that was just recently gifted to me by a friend. And that was, I'm sure a lot of your readers have actually already heard of it, but it was, it's the book Endurance by... Mm. Um, but about Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic exploration in 1914. And so for anybody who hasn't heard of it or read it, it's a book about um, Ernest Shackleton and this band of 27 explorers who try to make history by crossing the continent of Antarctica on foot. But the journey goes horribly wrong. They actually never even get to the continent. They get frozen in the sea off the coast of Antarctica. Get this for two years. What? So wow. in an age with no radio and no one who, even if someone did know where they were, they couldn't have gotten to them because they were frozen in an ice. These, this, and let's not to mention 
at that point in this, you know, in the Southern hemisphere, you, you have the polar night. So for two months of the year, it's just completely black. There's no sun. Um, and and th these guys should not have survived. And even if they did survive, they should have gone insane. But what's amazing is that, um, and I'm not, a, this is not a spoiler. The, the tale's famous because you know that actually everybody did survive. What's amazing to me is they not only survived, but they become friends. Um, mm. And uh, the, the, and the, the idea of the human capacity to endure the most dire and bleak of circumstances by banding together and fighting for survival was just so, I mean, the metaphors just radiate outward into life. So it's a, it's a really fascinating read. I mean, it is a page turner, wow. but it's also just an incredibly motivating book of, you know, you kind of both realize, oh, my situation is not that bad, but you also realize, oh, how can I be the kind of person who endures and, and encourages others to, to endure? Because as it turns out, um, life is hard and we all suffer. Yeah. And, no, and no matter if it's getting stuck in the Antarctic or going through a cancer scare, um, we have to endure through hard things. And that book is so neat for me. I just read it two months ago. Sounds awesome. Well, Justin, what uh, is the best way for people to connect with you and the work that you're doing? I would love for people to go online to thecommonrule.org if they want to read more about the book. I summarize a lot of the habits there and you can watch some videos or find more information about the book. And from there, there are links to my Twitter and Instagram. Um, and I'm active with, as you might imagine from the things we talked about, I'm, I'm semi-active. I don't engage all the time, but I definitely, you know, answer emails and, you know, I'll respond to you if you drop me a message on Twitter, or Instagram. So we'd love for people to go find me there. And um, if they're interested to read the book and you can find more information about that on the website at thecommonrule.org. Well, Justin, it's been a pleasure. I, I thoroughly enjoyed your book and I really enjoyed our conversation today. It's inspiring the stuff that you're putting out and, and thank you for, for sharing it with the audience today. For those that are listening, you can find links to all of what we've talked about today on my website at calwalters.me. And Justin, I just sincerely appreciate your time today. Thank you. This has been a great conversation, Cal. Thank you. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Justin Early. I really encourage you to go check out his book, the Common Rule, you can find it on my website, calwalters.me. So many great convicting things that he said. Uh, one question that certainly hit me is, is, how did I become the kind of person that was more attentive to the cries of my work than the cries of my son? And I think you and I, I bet, could ask that question about many of our habits. How did I become the kind of person who ultimately isn't living and acting in line with my beliefs and my values? And the answer is probably because we've formed habits that don't serve us. And I really encourage you to go check out Justin's book, go check out The Power of Habit, check out James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. You can also, if you're, if you're interested in this topic of the intentional use of digital devices, I know many of you may be watching The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Uh, I did an episode about Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism and, and Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. It's episode 21 if you want to check that out. Also, I really was convicted and at the same time encouraged by what he said about American culture sitting on this tilt, that if you do nothing else, you will likely become someone who is wealthier and busier 
who used to have friends. That was convicting for me, and it just highlights the importance of living an intentional life, of not just accepting our life, but figuring out the type of life that we want to have, and then figuring out systems that allow us to have that type of life. As James Clear says in his book, Atomic Habits, we should focus not necessarily on our results, but focus more on our trajectory. What are we becoming? Friends, I hope this encouraged you today. I hope you'll go check out those books. And I just want to remind you that life is short and let's go make it count.